Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is great to be back with all of you here um, after three weeks of ministering in North America. Thank you for uh, your prayers and your encouragement. And uh, I was able to bring greetings from our church um, to many churches uh, in the U.S. and in Canada. And uh, how exciting it was to run into many who had heard what God has been doing here at our church It was also a wonderful surprise uh, on this trip uh, to run into a college acquaintance on my flight from Canada to the U.S. Uh, I had not seen this person in 15 years ever since our college graduation. And as we met each other and uh, exchanged pleasantries, uh, I thought what a wonderful uh, happenstance to be able to run into him. After we exchanged pleasantries, I We both boarded the plane, and I took my seat in economy, thinking nothing of it. But in the plane before takeoff, uh, this friend of mine who was sitting up in first class uh, came to my seat and asked me to get my things and to come to the front with him. Uh, I hesitated and said, "I, I have a seat here. He said, no, I'd like you to take my seat, and then I'll take your seat. And I said, no, it's really okay. I can sit here in economy. It's a four-hour flight. Uh, it's not that long. It's not too bad. And he said, no, uh, please do me the honor of taking my seat up here in first class uh, because you work for God, and uh, I'll take your seat in economy. At his insistence, uh, I did that. But here's what I need to tell you. As I sat down up in the front, uh, I felt very guilty for sitting up in his seat The reason is, I didn't like him very much in college. Uh, In in fact, uh, if uh, he knew what I thought about him in college, he probably wouldn't have given me his seat. Fifteen years is a long time to forget uh, memories. But I really did sit up there, and um, I'd begun to outline the sermon that I'm going to be preaching to you this morning. And uh, as I've often mentioned, uh, God often teaches me the lessons first before... I'm able to preach it to you, and as I sat up there, I kept thinking, boy, this man is so much like David, and I'm so much like Saul. Uh, The things that I have said about him and uh, thought about him and done to him, I did not deserve this kindness uh, that he poured out, a heart of humility and of generosity. And I wondered if I was in the very same situation that he was in, and I knew what that other person thought of me. I don't know if I would have done the very same thing. But uh, what a wonderful man, and we exchanged pleasantries after we arrived, and that was that. This morning, as we continue our series entitled, David, a Man After God's Own Heart, we've been looking at different characteristics of a heart for God. And we come this morning to cultivating a heart of forgiveness. As you know, David had been on a run from Saul. He has had his life threatened. There had been many attempts on his life with some very close calls. And death would have been a certainty if not for the protection and the intervention of God. Although he had done nothing wrong, Saul was bent on seeing David's death. And so David had to leave his family and his friends and his very life. You could say that Saul ruined the life of David. But now, as we're going to take a look in these two chapters in 1 Samuel, now the tables are turned, and David is given a prime opportunity to exact revenge on Saul. What will he do? 
for a man who's lost everything because of one man and now has the opportunity to end this one man's life, to end his difficult tribulations, what would David do? What would you do in a very similar situation? Well, let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 24? And we're going to be looking at chapter 24 and chapter 26. Again, if you're new to the Bible, 1 Samuel is found in the Old Testament towards the first third of the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then we get to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and chapter 26 is what we're going to take a look at this morning. From these two chapters, we're going to draw out three principles for how we can start the process of forgiveness, even forgiving the most hated of enemies. It's a process. I'm not going to give you techniques. I want to give you the underlying foundation of what we are called to do. Let's begin in chapter 24. If you're reading verse 1 to 2, at the beginning of chapter 24, we find out that Saul has taken 3,000 of the best soldiers from all across Israel to look for David in the area of En Gedi. And I was just in En Gedi in April, and this area has lots of caves, lots of natural hiding places. It's a, a place of, of spring, and so you could very much hide there. And that's where we begin in verse 3. And Saul came to the sheepfold by the road where there was a cave, and he went in to attend to his need. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Saul comes to a cave, and he enters it to use the bathroom. And most likely, he has taken off his robe prior to doing his business. What he doesn't know is that David and his men are hiding in the back of that very particular cave. Verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. The man with David said, David, this is it. God has provided you with the opportunity, this amazing opportunity to exact revenge and to kill Saul. But for some reason, David hesitated. And the only thing he did was cut off a corner of Saul's royal robe. But look what happens in verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart was troubled. That David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Interestingly, David feels bad about cutting the robe of, David, uh, of Saul. Why in the world would David feel disturbed by what he has done? This is the guy who has been chasing him. This is the guy who wants him dead. And all David does in return is to cut off a part of his robe. He doesn't kill him. And why is it that it is David that feels guilty? But you know, in this feeling, you get a glimpse into the heart of David. You see, David saw that he had no right even to tamper with King Saul's robe. Even though the opportunity presented itself to exact revenge and to settle this matter once and for all, it was not for David to take action against Saul for this one fact. Look at verse 6. And David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see the repetition of how David views Saul. In fact, he tells Saul the very same thing if you jump down to verse 10. 
Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into the hand, into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David saw in Saul one who was the Lord's anointed, one who was specially set apart by God to be the current king over all Israel. And herein, if you're taking note, lies our first principle. Principle number one, forgiveness sees each person as God's anointed. Forgiveness sees each person as God's anointed. We have an obligation to forgive one another because the other person is God's anointed, meaning that although very hard to consider, we need to see that other person as God's unique creation. We need to see that other person as one who is loved by Him. And if he is a believer in Jesus Christ, then he is also a child of God. Yes, I know that's the furthest you want to be thinking about for a person who has wronged you, for a person who has caused you great injustice, to begin to think of him as someone who is God's so-called, quote-unquote, anointed. But that's the reality of the situation. It may not be easy to accept because of what the person has done for you. But you see, David is able to see past the actions of Saul and separate that from the very person of Saul for who he is. And he is God's anointed. He is specially, uniquely created by God with this very special purpose. And you may say, well, that person's purpose is to annoy me. Regardless if that's his purpose for you, he still has God's special purpose in his life. One who is anointed is a special creation of God. And you've got to remember that as much as God loves you, he loves that person just as much. I know you don't want to think about that, but that's the truth. When we see people as God sees people, then at least it enables us to begin the process of forgiveness. Forgiveness sees each person as God's anointed. When we begin to see others as broken people, people who have sinned like we do, and if they don't know the saving work of Christ, they are indeed to be pitied. But when we begin to see them as God sees them, then it changes the way we look at them. And this very difficult lesson, even for me, has brought in my life the realization that I need to change the way I treat people. There are countless people that I feel have wronged me. I'm willing to forgive them because God loves them just as much as He loves me. I don't like to think about that, but that's the truth. God loves them just as much as He loves me. I am able, beginning at least now, to separate the actions of the person from the person himself. Now, that doesn't mean I'm to be a martyr and to take the abuse. But at least it begins the process of freeing me up from the shackles of not being able to forgive. And my friends, if you look at your own life and what you've done, you may hope or you may wish that others view you in the same manner. As I look at my own imperfect life, I hope that I will be afforded the same view by others as they see me as God's child, as one who is His anointed. This trip, I had the opportunity to return back to the church where I grew up 
uh, for 18 years and I had the privilege of preaching at their service. I find it always a great joy to return back to my home church, but also return with a bit of reluctance because I just wasn't someone who was very good growing up in church. Our particular year was the terror of the Sunday school department. It just hope happened in that year all the boys happened to be the pastor's kids and the elder's kids and the deacon's kids. And you would expect us to be the angels of that group, but it was not the case. It was our avowed goal to make each teacher cry that taught us, to drive them out of ministry, and we accomplished that on many occasions. When I go back, I feel the great need to publicly apologize to all those teachers who taught me growing up for discouraging them in the ministry, and also to apologize to the countless young people who I think we turned away from church for many years. But this time as I preached, two of the boys that I grew up with came to hear me preach, and uh, the three of us uh, was able to take a picture together for old time's sake. When I posted the picture on Facebook, one of our childhood friend wrote this, The sight of you three together brings back all of my childhood trauma. (laughs) Thankfully, the church forgives and even allows me to come back and preach. But as I think about it, only when we see people as God sees people, to the extent of seeing them, however terrible they are, as someone who is God's anointed in their unique creation, one with a very special purpose, although we may not be able to see it at first, we can begin the process. I didn't say we'll finish the process. We can at least begin the process of forgiveness. In verse 7 to 12, David tells Saul that he has spared his life and has no intentions of harming him. Look at verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David tells Saul, Saul, as I see you as one who is God's anointed, would you also see me as one that God has anointed as well? Which is very true if we remember our very first sermon. Saul, David pleads, let God deal with me as he so desires, not how you desire But here we begin to see the contrast of one who is able to accept this view, viewing others as God's anointed, and one who does not, Saul. The result is this. David is willing to forgive. David, I believe, is able to rest easily as it comes out in the Psalms that he writes during this time. He has given this matter over to God, and and he is very much free, although he is running. In contrast to that one... Saul, who is unable to see others as God's anointed and becomes so obsessive compulsive that it drives him to end his own life. Until the end of his life, he is obsessive compulsive about getting rid of David. You just begin to see the contrast between one who is able to forgive and one who is not. Now turn with me over to chapter 26 in 1 Samuel. At the beginning of chapter 26 and verse 1 to 6, we find out that Saul, again with 3,000 men, are seeking David in the wilderness of Ziph. David's spies tell him the location of Saul's camp. 
And David goes to that place and checks it out. And he finds out that Saul's tent is a particular location and, and it is defended in such manner. David then asks for a volunteer from his own army to accompany him into Saul's camp. And a man by the name of Abishai volunteers. And this is where we pick up in verse 7 of chapter 26. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear struck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Middle of the night, David is able to sneak into the camp unnoticed to the very spot where King Saul is sleeping because we'll find out later in the chapter that God had put them all in a very deep sleep. And notice what the Bible tells us David sees. He sees Saul, but right next to Saul, the very spear of Saul. Now for you, you may simply gloss over this, but you've got to remember if you're reviewing chapter 18, 19, and 20, Perhaps this was the very spear that had been thrown at David three times. The very spear that could have taken out the life of David, if not for the providence and the intervention of God. If you saw this spear by the man who threw it, I'm sure it would conjure in you all of the anger and the hurts. And revenge would be on your mind, for sure it would be on mine. Then Abishai says to David, verse 8, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. Abishai tells David that God has appointed this opportunity. Therefore, kill this man. You, You know, David, I'll even do it for you. One strike, that's all I need. Your problems will all be gone with the very spear that has tried to kill you, David. Look at David's response in verse 9 and verse 10. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's, note this, anointed, and be guiltless. But then David continues in verse 10. David says to Abishai, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, and he shall go out to battle and perish David tells Abishai, I cannot touch him because he is the Lord's anointed. But he says, Abishai, I don't have to touch him. I don't have to take vengeance and revenge in my own hand. Because you know what, Abishai, God perhaps has an alternative way for Saul to die. That's what he says in verse 10. Abishai, I don't have to kill him now. There are three possible ways that Saul could die. He, God could terminate his own life. Or he could die from natural causes, physical affliction, a sickness. Or perhaps Saul could die in battle, which is what's going to happen in chapter 31. Here's what David is assuring Abishai. God will take care of my Saul problem because I don't have to do it. Because God will take care of this problem, I don't have to do it. Something will happen to him, but it's in God's hand. It's not in my hand. And here in the response to Abishai, we find our second principle. Peering into the glimpse of the heart of David. And here is that second principle number two. Forgiveness is rooted in trusting God's plan. Forgiveness is rooted 
in trusting God's plan. This is something we, I, find very difficult to do. Why we are often unwilling to forgive. Because at the root of the issue, we want to control the outcome. As you have hurt me, this is how I want to get back at you. This is how you have pained me. This is how I desire to pain you. And we want to control the situation and control the outcome in our own way and not in God's way. Why? Because deep down inside, I'm sure you may have thought this, I don't want God to handle this situation because God may be too soft on the person. God may not even do anything. You know, that God, He's always so forgiving. He may not do anything. But I want to do something about it. Forgiveness is rooted in trusting God to take care of the problem in this lifetime or in the lifetime that is to come. David acknowledged God, God is very able to deal with the problem of Saul without his help, without the help of Abishai. My friends, he's able to take care of those who have wronged you in his own way. Now, that doesn't mean you can't take any punitive actions to correct the wrong or to protect yourself in case someone is out to hurt you. But this is an attitude that says, Lord, I trust in your plan. I trust in how you will deal with that person and that how you deal with that person will be sufficient and adequate for me. This attitude requires a high level of trust. It requires you to let go, to submit to His will, because you see at its core, forgiveness is a control issue. At its very, very core, forgiveness is an issue of control. Who is in control of the situation? You see, when one forgives, or one is willing to forgive, then he trusts in God to handle situation, and then we can let things go. Having come back uh, from the U.S., I know that the talk of the town is about that $10 billion pork barrel scandal with Janet Lim Napolis. I know that as you read the articles that some of you are very angry that she, along with a lot of government folks, corrupt folks, have taken your hard-earned tax money. And we all want justice. But we also know the track record of our country's judiciary and I bet you there's a, as I've talked to some people, there, there's, a, there's a bit of fear that she won't get punished to the extent that she needs to. Let me just say, I, I don't know the outcome of how this is going to end out. I hope the truth will come out, but I don't know. I'm sure there will be people who get away with it. That's the reality of the situation. And you're going to be angry and you're going to feel helpless in your inability to do anything. She will have to answer to the law for what she's done. So do everyone. But whatever the outcome of all of the players involved, in this I am assured that she won't get away with it before God. No one will. You see, we will all stand before the Lord, each one of us, and we must all give an accounting of our lives, all of our actions, an accounting to the one who knows everything. Exacting revenge is what we all naturally want. But leaving it in the hands of a mighty God who is in control really is a wonderful feeling. We don't have to worry about getting justice. 
Because Romans chapter 12, verse 19 tells us, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's what he says. It's mine to dish out, to dole out punishment, and nothing's going to get by me. And I am assured I would like punishment to be doled out a lot quicker, but it's not my decision to make. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let me deal with it. And everyone was given accounting, and in that I am assured, and in that I am glad. I don't have to worry that the evil people seem to get away because God says, I will take care of it. We look at our own lives and we say, what about us? Are we willing to place the outcome of every situation in the hands of God because forgiveness is rooted in trusting God's plan? We do not forgive because we're not willing to give up control. Learn this lesson now. There's a story of a soap maker, one who made soaps, and he was walking along the road with a preacher one day. They happened to be very good friends. This soap maker was not saved, and he said to the preacher, Preacher, the, pa- the gospel you preach has not done much good. All this talk about God and Jesus, it hasn't done much good. There's still a lot of wickedness in the world, and very wicked people as well. Quietly, they walked on. The preacher did not reply to his friend's comment until they passed by a dirty little child playing in the mud in the gutter. With this scene before them, the preacher turned to the soap maker and said, I see that soap has not done much good in the world, for there is still much dirt in the world and many dirty people around. Oh, well, you know, said the soap maker, soap is only useful when it is applied. Exactly, said the preacher. So it is with the gospel message you, we proclaim. It only is effective when it is applied. Forgiveness will work when you apply the truth of trusting in God. It will not work if you simply see it as something you must do. It will not work if it's an obligation by which you have to do it. Because the Bible said so. Because you won't. Forgiveness will work when you apply the truth of trusting in God's plan. When he says, vengeance is mine. When he says, I will dole it out. Let's move on. After David leaves the camp, he takes with him the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they escape. From the other side of the valley, in verse 13 to verse 25, David shames Abner, Saul's bodyguard, for not better protecting the king. And then David asks Saul, Saul, why are you pursuing me? What have I done? David says, if I've done something wrong, I will repent. I will make amends. Saul is so convicted in his heart. He says, David, I'm so sorry. Come back home. I have been wrong. I promise I won't harm you anymore. Well, Saul has made that promise many a times, only to break the promise. But I want you to focus on the response of David in verse 23 and verse 24. I love his response. David says to Saul, May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Note this. 
And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. David says to Saul, The Lord will repay. The Lord will make things right. And I know this will happen because he has given me two opportunities to take revenge for what you have done. But David says, I will not be the one to kill you. But, but here in verse 24 is something very important. David says, Saul, I value your life. That's what he says when he said, your life was valued much this day in my eyes. I value you, Saul. Now the natural response, or you would think, is David would say, Saul, would you value me as well? Would you forgive me as well? But no. David says, I don't expect anything from you. You've broken many promises. I see that my life is valued in the eyes of God and that he will deliver me. David says, Saul, I value you, but I don't expect you to value me in return. All I'm living my life for is to see that God values me. God accepts me. And here you see the third principle in David's statement. It's a bit more difficult to understand, but I think you'll get it once I say it. Number three. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity, only acceptance in God's eyes. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity, means something in return, to reciprocate. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity, only acceptance in God's eye. And what it means is this. When you forgive someone, you do not expect that other person will forgive you. If you're waiting for them to return something good, you're going to be waiting for a long time. When you forgive, you don't expect them to forgive you first. It doesn't matter how it is reciprocated. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity. The only concern you have is to find acceptance in the eyes of God in your action. David basically says, Saul, I don't care what you think about me. My hope is that God sees me as someone who has done the right thing. That's what he says in the end of verse 24. So let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. He will be the one that delivers me. It's a deep concept, but I need you to learn it or else you'll never understand forgiveness. Some of you are still waiting for the other person to make the first move. Some of you are still angry, even though you've forgiven that other person, that the other person has not forgiven you. It doesn't work that way. Forgiveness does not expect reciprocity. The reason you do it is because you find acceptance in the eyes of God. He is well pleased in what you have done. And as such, David says, he will deliver me. On the way back uh, from the North America, back to the Philippines, a long flight, and um, couldn't sleep, so I was watching a movie uh, called 42. I don't know if it was played here or not, but uh, I like baseball, and 42 is uh, is a wonderful movie, uh, a baseball movie about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the first black player in the all-white major league of baseball. He signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, before he was to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers at that time in New York. He had an exchange with the owner, a guy by the name of Branch Rickey. 
And the owner told Jackie, be prepared for the racial slurs. Be prepared for the insults that will be thrown at you. It will be ugly. You are the first black player to break baseball's color barrier. But he says, Jackie, you must not react. You must not react. They are waiting for you to react. You must not. They will throw at your head. They will abuse you. They will call you names. But you must not react to the racial slurs and the insults that will be thrown at you. They're just waiting for an excuse to kick you out. And in the movie, and I don't know if this is taken from real life, but Jackie says to the owner, you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? You want someone who doesn't have the guts to fight back? Branch Rickery, the owner, tells him, no. I want a player who has got the guts not to fight back. I want someone who has the guts not to fight back. It took a lot, if you watch the movie, but if you read historically about the life of Jackie, it took him a lot of control not to fight back at the things that were said about him. The insults and the racial slurs for this first black player in the major league. A man who does not have to expect anything in return and yet must only do what is right. It's hard. It's really hard. But to this day, almost 50 years later, Jackie Robinson's number, 42, is the only number that is retired on every major league baseball team. Means you can't use his number again. That's how honored he is. In the same way, forgiveness does not expect reciprocity. You do it because it is right in the eyes of God. And that's the only person you're doing it for. Yes, forgiveness is often one-sided, but that's okay because you have done the right thing. You are looking not for the applause of many, you are looking for the applause of one, our Lord. David's heart of forgiveness sprung out not because he was just a forgiving person. He struggled with it as well. But David's heart of forgiveness was set because he had a heart set to please God. And that's why it was easy for him, even though all of his men clamored for him to kill Saul, it was easy for him to spare the very life of Saul on these two occasions. Look at verse 25 as we close. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall do both great things and also shall prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. It seems from the scriptural text that this was the last time that Saul chased David. Saul was now resigned to the fact that one day David would be king. David was able to maintain his reputation and he would be king. And he didn't have blood on his hand. You know, when you read these two chapters, and I hope you'll do so in great detail, you will come away with the great notion and the great impression that David is indeed the better person. That, that, that's the reputation. If David had killed Saul, perhaps in one of these two occasions, we all may have nodded our head, good for him. But somehow our reputation of David may not be what it is today. He just come away thinking, wow, what a good, better person. Forgiveness is not easy. I don't give you techniques, as I've said. I give you principles by which you can forgive. 
It may be those principles that guide you, that begin to work in your life with the help of the Holy Spirit, modeled and exemplified by our own Lord, who forgave each one of us in spite of the injustice He endured. He endured it not so that we could applaud Him. He did not forgive us so that we could love Him more. In fact, He did it because He loved us. And He did it for the applause of one, His Heavenly Father. And He chose to forgive us. He did not get anything in return. In fact, every day, the way we live our life, we don't seem like we thank Him for what He's done. We can change that this morning by living a life that is holy and pleasing, a life that cultivates a heart of forgiveness because of the one who has forgiven us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the hard lessons we must learn, I must learn. It is hard to forgive, and yet, Lord, it is in that in which you are well pleased. Help us all to see each other as God's anointed, one to whom God is uniquely created with a very special purpose. Help us to see through eyes of faith. Help us to see people and love them as you have loved them. Help us, Lord, to root our lives in the complete trust of the one who has everything in control. And help us to live our life, not for the applause of many, but for the applause of one. May we be found well-pleasing in your eyes, Lord, this morning as we live forth this life in your service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.